0: Well, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we are. And this morning I'd like to begin with the solution to a problem. As one author writes, wedding doctrine and practice, that means marrying doctrine and practice destroys superficial Christianity. Wedding Doctrine and practice destroy superficial Christianity. You see, when a believer's mind and heart are not joined, if, if you're not working in unison together, then credibility in that person will suffer. And so we're reminded, and we've been reminded, from chapter 4, of this letter to the Philippians, written by Paul we looked at him issuing these nine commands in these opening nine verses, the chief of which is stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Christian, be firmly committed in your convictions, your beliefs in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul called the Philippians to spiritual stability, to a steadfastness, A stability made sure, made certain through spiritual intimacy with Christ, in union with Him. And the remaining eight imperatives, as you see them, directed the Philippians on how to stand firm in Christ. It really is an instruction manual that follows on how to stand firm. First, we saw by helping one another to think the same way. We saw those two women who weren't. And others in the church were called to do that, commanded, in fact. Two times, he says that we are to rejoice in the Lord always, taking the greatest delight in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, fourthly, exhibiting a gentle demeanor to all, remembering that the Lord is near. His return is imminent. Fifth, we saw the command that all anxiety was to be abandoned. And sixth, then, by giving oneself over to God in prayer, this was the remedy to abandoning anxiety, to dealing with that, to putting it off. Seventh, we'll see today that meditating, that we are to meditate on all that is virtuous. Meditating is commanded. And finally, this this ninth imperative really is that we would imitate Paul's example even as he imitates Christ. And so nine imperatives given to us. But let's also not then overlook the promises that accompany the obedience to these commands. And we've seen one of those promises already. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus in verse seven. But then we'll also see in verse nine that the God of peace will be with you. Two promises that come near the end of this list of imperatives. It's a, a recipe with it, each ingredient providing evidence in the life of the believer. That would lead us away from and guard us against all superficiality. And it will be obvious from our text today that Christians are not to be shallow. We are not to be one-dimensional. Now we should, we should take note, each of these commands can be disobeyed. And we need to think carefully about that. To be anxious is to be disobedient. To not meditate is to be disobedient. And so we need to be rightly calibrated once again. And you may remember that illustration that I used a few months ago, that illustration of a frame, a hinge, and a door. Verse 1 was that hinge, therefore, served as that hinge that Paul used to connect the framework of a proper Christian attitude Right standards and being grounded and governed positionally in Christ, as we saw at the end of chapter three, to the outworking of one's faith, as we see it now in these opening nine verses of chapter four. But this illustration still lacks one key component, and I use no pun intended when I say key. A door, in order for it to operate successfully, requires a handle or that door is useless to us, cannot be used. And so verses eight and nine here really are that handle. They allow us to operate that door successfully. These are monumental verses. And friends, if these two verses are in fact obeyed, the effects that it'll have on one, the remainder of your time here on earth will be truly Phenomenal. When these two verses are disobeyed, sin is manifested, I would say, in at least two ways. Some are caught up in a laziness, in not meditating, in not trying to exert their, their minds, their intellect. Refusing to exert the effort that's required to think as commanded here. But then secondly, others are satisfied with knowledge only and never living out that knowledge, never putting it to practical use in the Christian life, not living out their theology as Paul commands, in fact, as he demonstrates. And I submit to you that if you earnestly desire to obediently work out your faith with fear and trembling, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, according to chapter two and verse 12 as we've already heard. And if you desire to prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you desire to appear as lights in this world. If these are truly your desires, then you must obey verses eight. And nine. And so let's read Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Follow along with me in your copy of God's word. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so Paul provides for believers here two primary means by which standing firm in the Lord is mobilized. And he does this so that the promise of God then is realized. That promise being that the God of peace will be with you. I'll say that again. He provides for us two primary means by which standing firm in the Lord is mobilized. And he does this so that the promises that he has written about here would be realized. That the God of peace will be with you. And so first, we'll see the means of meditation in verse 8. And then secondly, the means of imitation in verse 9. Meditation and imitation. And so let's take a look first at the means of meditation that is commanded of us in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, and any, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now, this first word here, finally, really provides two final instructions. And this term here is really to elevate their importance, maybe some of you parents can think about those final instructions that you give just before your children go out the door. Those are the most important instructions, are they not? Those are the ones that you want to make sure that they are hearing. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. And that first instruction, that first command is to dwell on these things. Now, this comes from the term "lagizomai." giving us the English words logic or logical. You hear that in logizomai. And it's to give careful thought to a matter, to think deeply about something, to consider a matter, to make one's own mind ponder something. And logizomai also gives a sense of uh, methodically calculating something mathematically. So this is working through something in one's mind, and this is what he's calling us to do. He uses this term in Romans 6 and verse 11. Listen to this. He says, Even so, consider, that's that term, legizomai, or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is what we are to calculate we are to calculate, we are to carefully consider, to ponder how we have died to sin. And not only that, but then how we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. Have you thought about this meticulously? Have you thought about Romans 11, just these two simple truths? Have you calculated through that carefully? I have no doubt that the way you live your life might very well be different if you do a deep dive into this one verse. To dwell is to meditate upon something. And it was my experience in seminary, not with one, one of my pastors alone, but with several of the professors as well. When they were asked a question, I was I marveled at how quickly they could respond to these questions and do so methodically. These men had spent many, many hours in the Word of God, many, many hours before the Lord in prayer, contemplating what the Word of God said. And when asked to, to recall something, they could do so, and they could take you several hours layers deep. Implication after implication after implication. What's the result of wrong thinking? And there we go. There's, there's a, a cascading effect. Nothing superficial about it. And this is what Paul is calling us to do as well. To carefully consider truths, to meditate upon them. Puritan William Fenner wrote of four things in meditation. Listen to this. First, it's an exercise of the mind. And second, it's a settled exercise. It dwells upon truth. It has a focus, a target. And third, it seeks to make further inquiry Meditation pulls the latch of the truth and looks into every closet, into every cupboard, and every angle of it. It's methodical. It's thorough. And finally, fourth, he says, meditation labors to affect the heart. This is more than just a pursuit of knowledge. This is so that that what is learned and what is What is revealed from one's meditation can be applied to daily living. And yet it's a sad fact that many disregard this command in verse eight. Giving up almost immediately rather than seriously exercising the mind and solemnly thinking on the things of God, earnestly and purposefully musing on some particular point of Christian instruction. Satisfied with Googling borrowed convictions or simply moving on to something that's far less strenuous. It lacks discipline. It lacks discipline and likely seeks entertainment rather. And so you need to understand this command. It's given to us in the present tense and in the middle voice as this revealed by the Greek spelling of this term, this verb, continually dwell on these things, present tense. This is an ongoing pursuit. It doesn't end. But then secondly, it's the intentional and habitual intellectual practice of the believer, and it requires a decided daily discipline. He doesn't leave it at that. He also gives us what the content of those meditations must be. And so take a look at the text again. He gives us a list of eight virtues that we are to be meditating upon. First, he says, whatever is true. This applies to whatever is in accordance with being factual, conforming to reality. Whatever is genuine, whatever the ideal is. Now, we know that all truth is God's truth. Is that not right? All truth is God's truth. God is the only true God, according to Isaiah 43.10. And he is true ethically. In fact, he cannot lie, according to Titus 1 and Numbers 23. And since God cannot lie, then his word is true. And his word is truth, Psalm one nineteen. And 160. In fact, Psalm 119 and 151 says, All your commandments are true. And we know as Jesus prayed in the garden to his Father, he said, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. Your word is true. But what does Paul have in mind when he says, Whatever is true? What is he he talking about here? Well, I think he, he demonstrates that for us in Titus 1. And I'd ask you to turn there. Titus 1. In Titus 1, for context, we know that Paul instructs Titus to go establish elders in every city. And he lists the qualifications for elders, for overseers. But at the same time, setting those churches in order is not going to be an easy task. And so let's pick up at verse nine with this last qualification where he writes, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Now, why was this qualification so vital? Well, he answers that question for us in verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, windbags, and deceivers, especially Those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And then notice in verse 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true two observations need to be made here. First of all, let's observe that Paul agrees with the general assessment of this pagan, this 6th century B.C. Greek poet named Epimenides. Epimenides was speaking of his own people. He assessed his own people when he said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And This was something that Paul labeled as true. He said, this testimony is true. Now, there's a reason why Epimedes wrote this. The people in Crete had claimed that they possessed Zeus's tomb, which was an affront to the Greek world, really, because gods were not supposed to die. And so that's the context behind what he writes here what Epimenes has written, but Paul quotes this. And he says, this is in fact true. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and he uses this with reference to those false teachers, those rebellious men that are coming up against the church. But let's notice a second observation here. Notice that Epimenes himself recognized what is true. What is virtuous to some degree. And friends, when Paul instructs believers to dwell on whatever is true, it's as one commentator writes, he assumes the unbelieving world has some notion of good good and bad, of right and wrong, of duty and being irresponsible, of beauty and ugliness, of honor and shame. All in the world can, can recognize this love, God's written on their hearts according to Romans chapter 2, and so they're not oblivious to what is virtuous in this world, but we also need to realize here what Paul isn't telling the Philippians. He's not telling them to embrace the culture. We recognize that the culture can show virtue, but we don't embrace the culture, but we can be in agreement with it. Whatever Is true we are to dwell on and even when those in the world say something that is true we ponder the virtue that's displayed even in this fallen world when an unbeliever views the killing of the unborn as immoral we can we can give a hearty amen to that we really can But we need to observe one more. We need to make one more observation from Titus one here. And so Paul agrees with this pagan poet. He says his testimony is true. In fact, they are liars. He's speaking truth when he says that. But one more observation. We need to look back at verse 13 again, where he goes on to say, for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Paul roots this instruction. This instruction to Titus is rooted in the word of God. He recognizes the truth. The false teachers, these rebellious men, have elevated their traditional laws, their legalistic standards above the word of God. And here, literally, he's pointing out that in, in Judaism, as they, are, as they are implementing their traditional interpretations of the law to establish a legalistic uh, system, it, it's a departure from the Torah, from the five books, the Pentateuch, as is known, the first five books of the Old Testament, But the gold standard is always God's word, not the traditions of men. And so we seek to dwell upon, first and foremost, whatever is true, whatever is in accordance with the word of God. And at the same time, we're not given over then to falsehood, to myths, to fantasy, to fiction, being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. No, that's not That's not us. And it's at this point I would even encourage you, each one of you, to attend Brad's Sunday school class this morning. Because he is going to talk about being given over to, to fantasy, to, to fiction, to myths, to falsehood, being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by chasing after conspiracy theories. This is not what we're to meditate upon. We are to discern all that we hear in light of what God has already said. That is whatever is true. Whatever is honorable then comes second. This refers to noble character, to dwelling upon what is morally worthy, whatever is even awe-inspiring. And scripture lists this as a necessary virtue for both men and women. We see that deacons likewise must be men of dignity in 1 Timothy 3.8, and women must likewise be dignified, 1 Timothy 3.11. And as we read here last week during our scripture reading, older men are to be temperate, dignified, Titus 2 and verse 2. And so as Christ followers then, we don't meditate on what is ignoble, what is contemptible, what is viewed at, with disdain, what is dishonorable, what is vulgar or lewd, our demeanor alone, being honorable, being dignified, should set us apart from the rest of this world. And so we, we meditate upon whatever we see Is honorable in accordance with God's word. Thirdly, whatever is right. This means that which is obligated for justice, in order for fairness to be carried out, in order for something to be equitable, recognizing that at the same time understanding what is true is vitally necessary in order to recognize what is whatever is right. We need to be able to distinguish between that which is right and that which is almost right. right. That is discernment. In Romans 7 and verse 12, Paul writes, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous, there's that word, right, and good. And the law, we know, is the revelation, really, of its author and his acceptable standard of right. And yet the, the ungodly seek to distort this, right? We see this by example, in Acts chapter four and verse 19, you'll recall that Peter and John end up in front of the Sanhedrin. they make an appearance. And in verse 19 we read, "But Peter and John answered and said to, to them to the members of the Sanhedrin, "Whatever is right in the sight of God, to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop seeking, speaking, rather, about what we have seen and heard. And so this is really a confronting statement by the apostles. They are indicting the Sanhedrin for placing themselves over and above the judgment of God, of God's view of what is right. But Peter and John, they know, right? They know who defines what right is. And we I think practice this, even in our own context here, as our beloved pastor was recently acquitted, we could say that was right, right? And that was carried out by a, a secular system, by a godless system, really. And so we can, we can dwell upon that. We can dwell upon whatever is right and be in agreement with it. And we're at the same time not to then to stew upon unrighteousness. We're not to, to meditate upon injustice. It's very tempting to do so. And certainly we're not to devise ways to cheat the system, to bend the rules. No, that's not the, that's not the practice of the Christian either. When we are wronged, right permeates our meditations. Right? This is whatever is right. Right? fourthly whatever is pure this is something that's worth admiring because it's unblemished in quality it's moral it's moral morally clean chaste it's free from sinful motives and and actions this term is typically attributed to divinity we see this in in James 3:17 but the wisdom from above is first Pure. pure. And again, in 1 Peter 3 and verse 2, this time describing the godly behavior of a wife, Peter writes, as they observe your chaste, your pure and respectful behavior. And so therefore, we as Christians, we as Christ followers, are not to be consumed with that which is impure, That which is unholy, that which is blemished or insincere. We're not to dwell upon the carnal or the contaminated. And the world of entertainment comes to mind, does it not? TV, movies, podcasts, the news, filthy language everywhere, streamed onto our every device. This is what pops up on our devices immediately. We're not to consume ourselves with that. We need to fight against that, in fact. Do not dwell upon that which is impure. We need to be discerning because even in these last days, as as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 5, even in these last days, there will be those who are unholy, those who are impure, This is the way they operate. Some even holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And so there's a glimmer of purity there. But through and through, it's not genuine. And so we need to again be discerning that which is pure from that which is impure and dwelling upon that which is pure. It's so easy to take a curious look, isn't it? It's so easy then to even maybe snicker at something that we've seen that's impure. Then a second glance. But we know the safeguard. Psalm 1 provides us that safeguard. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Meditate day and night on the law of the Lord and you will not be found walking, then stopping and standing to gawk at sin, and even then sitting down and becoming comfortable with it. No, we need to be pure. And we need to meditate on whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, fifthly, something that causes pleasure or delight. It's pleasing and agreeable. It comes off as pleasant. And so notice that there's a a passive sense here. This is something that causes one to realize its lovely quality. Literally, this, this Greek word, it's a compound word. It could be rendered friendly towards. Right? You recognize that something is friendly towards you. It's not crude or distasteful. It's not causing you displeasure. Or anger. It's not leading to dissatisfaction, which then leads to resentment, which then leads to bitterness, which then leads to hostility. No, these aren't the things that we dwell upon. We dwell upon the things that are lovely, whatever is lovely. And if we dwell upon whatever is lovely, then the result won't be those not so lovely things. So easy to stew over things in our hearts, right? To bitterness, resentment, and to spend a great amount of time. Your entire day is spent meditating. You'll meditate on something. You really will, right? What is it, Christian, that you're meditating upon? Whatever is lovely is to be dwelt upon. Sixthly, whatever is of good repute Now, this is a word that's used only here in the New Testament. Euphema. Euphema is how it's pronounced. Something spoken with cautious reserve. Words that are said out of respect for something that is commendable. Worthy of praise. Reputable words. These words are carefully chosen words. There's no recklessness here. They're they're trying to Temper the language, right? Euphema is where we get the English euphemism from, right? And a euphemism is a word or phrase intentionally used to avoid saying something unpleasant or offensive. And so I was telling some young guys that I got fired from a job, right? Uh, Back when I was, I think, 19. But in fact. I wasn't fired. I was left to pursue other interests, right? It's a gentler approach, right? Carefully thought through words, right? My heart was was not broken in the instant. Friends, our words need to display our thoughtfulness. We need to calculate through our words before they come from our mouths. And that is what Paul is calling us to do, to dwell upon these things, to think through what Christian speech is to sound like. That that is necessary. And then Paul reinforces the six virtues that we've just looked at with two more, really by way of summary, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, these are a summary of all that is morally and spiritually excellent. It's a call to a life of of discernment and discipline. And we'll see this discernment and discipline exemplified by Paul's example. Now, it's sometimes helpful, and Scripture even does this, to to listen to something that is the opposite, right? So if we were to approach verse 8... With an opposite understanding, it would read as such, Finally, brothers, whatever is false, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is heinous, whatever is defiled, whatever is hideous, whatever is undeserving of praise, if there is anything immoral, if anything worthy, unworthy of praise, do not think about these things. Don't think about those things. Now, some of you may be thinking, I know I'm coming off a little strong here maybe this morning. Some of you may be thinking right now, my thought life is a bit of a train wreck. Maybe you're thinking, I've got much work to do, much reorganizing that is necessary. I would say this. First, go before the Father's throne of grace. And turn from that. Repent of that. And do so daily. Confess that sin of dwelling upon all that is lackluster and less than godly. And then here's maybe one suggestion. Get a pencil and paper. At the top of the page, write this title, Meditating on Whatever is True. Meditating on whatever is true. that's the title. Then go to Romans 6:11 and meditate upon that. You have died to sin. You've made a, been made alive with Christ, in Christ. And go 20 layers deep on that. Go 30 layers deep on that. Don't stop. Fill that page. If you have died to sin, then what does that look like? How is that practiced? What then do you think of? Right? So the first means to mobilize standing firm in the Lord and putting off any hint of superficiality due to an intellectual laziness. In order to do that, one must meditate on these eight virtues that Paul has listed here. Now we could ask this, why did Paul include this? Why are we to meditate upon these things? I think it's helpful also to think of it in terms of how it could drive our evangelism. We know that the world can show virtue. And we know that the majority of people that you'll talk to in this world will think that they're pretty good because they recognize virtue and can even see it in their lives. But there's an opportunity then to first find some common ground, but then to point out All of the areas that they fall short in, right? Just as we've seen, we fall short in these areas too. And then to urge them to go to the cross, to repent and to trust in the risen Lord. Thinking rightly leads to right affections of the heart, which leads to rightly willing something into right action or practice. And this is what we must do. Now, secondly, secondly, let's take a look at the means of imitation. The means of imitation. Verse 9. Follow along again. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, the world is full of armchair quarterbacks, is it not? Now, some of you might think, I haven't heard that term before. Armchair quarterbacks. I think our beloved pastor might be one from time to time. (laughs) And certainly some in the church are armchair quarterbacks. An armchair quarterback is a person who watches sports on television, who can call plays and critique virtually every move, made by players and coaches, by officials, without ever having left that fully reclined recliner. (laughs) Right? An armchair quarterback. Well, let me tell you, Paul was no armchair quarterback, right? He could talk the walk, but he walked the talk as well. And we see that here as he points to his own example. He gave the Philippians an example of life and ministry to follow. And so he gives the command and rendered practice in the NASB. This means to do through activity or to accomplish something through activity. And so Paul lists four things which they are to accomplish. First of all, they are to practice the things they learned from him. Now, Paul here, his instruction, first of all, what they had learned was they had, they had gained theological knowledge, no doubt about that. But they also learned as they observed his practical example, his life lived out before them. And we can visualize Paul's example by looking to Acts chapter 20. As he calls the Ephesian elders to to him and gives them farewell, he says many important things about his own ministry. In verse 20 he writes, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt, the Romans, or rather, no doubt these Ephesian elders, together with the congregation, the sheep that were present, they learned much by inquiring inquiring of Paul, right? Right? And we can, we can see that the churches and the individuals inquired of Paul. It's evident from his letters. We can infer the very questions that individuals and in churches asked the apostle. And then he gives instruction, right? In fact, in Ephesians 4 and verse 20, he writes, But you did not learn Christ in this way. And then he goes on to describe how they had gone to putting off the old self the, in its lusts of deceit and putting on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. And so there was, there's evidence, right, that as they put off and put on, they have, they have learned from Paul. What have they learned? Well, they've learned Christ. They've learned Christian living, Then secondly, he says, practice the things you received from me. And this word implies that those whom Paul ministered to came into agreement, into alignment. They accepted, they approved of what they heard come from him, his teaching, his preaching. This this receiving is is demonstrated in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, a common verse. Paul continually thanked God because the Thessalonians received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. They accepted, they approved that very fact, that the word of God was not the word of men, but it was the word of God. And again, he uses this receiving language in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1 now I make known to you brethren the gospel which I preached to you which you which also you received in which you also stand there's evidence of having received that by which you also are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And so they received the gospel from Paul. They received sound doctrine from Paul. They received godly counsel from Paul. Encouragements, exhortations, commands, instructions, his very role model. Each of those they approved, they accepted They said, this is what it needs to be. This is what our lives need to be. This is the truth. They received it all. Then thirdly, they are to practice the things heard from Paul. This is to perceive or to comprehend from hearing. Listening means that you actually are hearing what the other person is saying, that you're not misinterpreting that, you're not misunderstanding that in any way, but you're taking it, for what it is. And again, we see in Ephesians 4 and verses 20 and 21 where he writes, but you did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Christ. They perceived, they comprehended by way of hearing. And the evidence of that again was putting off and putting on putting off sinful habits, putting on the righteous habits as Paul taught them. And then finally, fourthly, the things that they saw Paul do. Now, you may be reminded of Philippians 3 and 17, where Paul writes, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. These are tangible works that are visually seen and and recognized and acknowledged for what they are. And again, in Acts chapter 20, as Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders, he really gives us a lot of visual in terms of what his ministry, what his life looked like. In verse 18, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. There was an observed humility to this man, even to the point of tears through many trials which came upon him through the plots of the Jews. But then again in verse 24, he didn't consider his life to be of any account as dear to himself. And this was something that was clearly seen as he lived his life before them. He went about rather preaching the kingdom in verse 25. They saw him do this. He did not shrink from declaring to them the whole purpose of God. Again, this was something that they also saw him do. Night and day for a period of three years, Paul did not cease to admonish each one with tears While at the same time, in verse 33, coveting no one's silver or gold or clothes, but they also seen him work with his hands to to supply for his own needs into the men who were with him. He showed that by working hard in this manner, that they too were to help the weak in verse 35. This is all seen tangibly in the life of Paul. And this is what we then are to imitate. We are to dwell upon and practice these very things. How are we to accomplish these things? Well, what what we've learned from Paul, what we read from Scripture, we need to teach. We need to teach that to others, to our children, to to those that the Lord brings into our company. Things that we have received, We need to hand down to others. We need to ensure that they receive those very same things. What was heard from Paul was proclaimed by others, and we too need to proclaim what we hear. But then finally, he says, what you saw in me, well, we see a life of humility, a life given over to sacrificial service, right? not considering his own interests, but the interests of others always ahead of his own. This is what we are to imitate. And not only imitate, but repeat. Right? We are to repeat this over and over and over again in our lives. And so we've seen what we are to dwell upon, purging the mind of all that doesn't align, and then joining The convinced mind with the real, the the readied and settled heart, right? We need to join those together so that we would not be one-dimensional, but that we would be true Christians, imitators of Paul, even as he said he was of Christ in 1 Corinthians 1 and 11. Meditating, living out biblical faith, Meditating and living out biblical faith are commanded of us. These are are things that we can consciously choose to disobey. But we know and we've already said that if we are given commands then we also know that God supplies the grace to carry these commands out, to live in obedience before him, to do these very things. His grace is sufficient. Then finally here... Let's not overlook this promise. Obedience is accompanied by the promised presence of God, the God of peace. This is the name that that Paul uses in, in some of the prayers that he writes to the churches. In Romans 15 and verse 33, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And again, in 1 Thessalonians Five and 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This signifying, the God of peace signifying that he is present and not only present but also at work in us. And we know that when the God of peace is with you, You should know that when the God of peace is with you, then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a glorious promise, is it not? That's a glorious promise. Who wouldn't want the God of peace present with them daily and throughout this day? We we want this every moment Without exception. And so we know what needs to be done. But at the same time, maybe there are some here who have not yet received the mind of Christ. You are not able to dwell upon the truths of God's word. You're unable to live in a way that is pleasing to God. This isn't your practice. And as such, then you don't have the promise of of the God of peace being with you, but you remain unreconciled to God and not at peace with him. Well, it's important to be reminded of what God has already done in sending his son to go to the cross to pay the penalty for sin, to be laid in a grave, to be raised on the third day, showing that both sin and death have been defeated. That God's wrath over sin is satisfied. And if you would only trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would only come before God and turn from your sin, confess Christ as Lord, Him your master, your complete and total surrender this day, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done to secure salvation. Something that you could never do. You can... You can practice every one of those virtues that we just looked at. You could try to live a life in imitation of Paul and it will all be for naught because you haven't first trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what is needed. If you're here today, go before God. Call upon him. Seek his forgiveness and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and then begin to dwell upon the things that are virtuous and practice what Paul's life looked like, even as he himself imitated Christ. Do that and be an encouragement to those around you. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you and this seems a mighty task to dwell upon these things as Paul has laid out for us so meticulously. And Father, you have exposed sin in our lives here this morning. And if we are still not convinced, then God, I pray that you would, that you would expose that. Knowing that You saved us, not according to our works, our good deeds, but that we have been saved through Christ, and now we are to dwell upon all that is true. And not only that, but we are to walk through life daily, living in this manner, imitating Christ as as we see in the life of Paul. Help us to do that and help us to be an encouragement to others in this pursuit as well. We pray in Christ's name, amen.